Welcome back, Unfuckers. 99 here. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., Cringy, Cindy S., and Corey S., unfucking insane level members of the show. To learn more about how you can support UNFTR, go to unftr.com. Or if you're interested in becoming a member, you can go right to buymecoffee.com slash UNFTR. Before we get started today, I wanted to personally thank all of the plant fuckers who reached out to offer positive feedback on our vegan episode last week. It was gratifying to hear that it resonated with so many of you, and hopefully it inspired you to think differently about our food supply and the connections to climate change, public policy, and economics. Today, we're talking about libertarianism, and I know Max is excited about this one, because he deliberately left it out of our isms episode saying it deserved its own unfucking. So much, though, that we're actually doing this one in two parts. We also have some pod love that we wanted to share up front, so I'll hand it to Max and catch y'all on show notes. Well, thank you, 99. Welcome, unfuckers. Uh, before we dive into libertarianism, I wanted to talk to you about a show that we've recently connected with that I think unfuckers are going to dig. It's called Straight White American Jesus, and it's hosted by Brad Onishi and Dan Miller, two former evangelical ministers who are now religion professors. I think Brad's an associate professor of religion at Skidmore College, and Dan is the chair of the liberal studies department at Landmark College. So we've covered a bit of the evangelical strain of Christianity in America and its historical impact on public policy, especially on our episode, Prosperity Doctrine, Christ as Capitalist, where we pulled from Jeff Charlotte's work, among others. There's a ton of parallels between the track of fundamentalism and libertarianism and the unholy alliance between some of the dark money funders that perverted both doctrines. So this is a worthwhile journey. Straight White American Jesus covers religion and politics and explores the impact of Christian nationalism, and it does it in a really smart and analytical way to show how Christian supremacists are waging war on American democracy. Now, the guys have been doing this since 2018, I think, and they have a ton of great content available, so it's really impactful and important stuff that fits neatly into the avenues that we travel on this show. So check it out when you get a chance. U to the N to the FTR. Unfucking the Republic, beating people where they are. Left, right, center, make you laugh, make you cry. Max brings the heat of a basic white guy. Could have run for office, could have got up off his ass. Hey. Could have made something other than a fucking podcast. But here we are, yo. The UNFTR show. Many faces ripping the script with unfuckers around the globe. And Brady brings it back for Tom McGovern. Let's go. Unfuckers, unconnuckers, you're a fuckers 99. I'm the fuckers and some fuckers, they all like they fucking mind. From New York to Outagami, Halifax to New Zealand. Say it loud, say it with me. Yo, yo fuck, fuck Milton Friedman. If you're a libertarian, please do not turn this off in disgust or anger. If you're not sure about us yet, but identify as a libertarian and thought, okay, they're talking my language now, so I'll give them a shot, you might reasonably be pissed at certain points during the episode. So let's hash this out before we go much further. Like most ideologies, there are several appealing principles behind libertarianism. And like most ideologues, libertarians exist on a spectrum. A couple, actually. They can range from casual to deep and abiding, or left-wing to right-wing, classic to nouveau. In America, libertarianism has come to mean so many different things depending on your personal belief system, and there are multiple strains of this really broad notion. And predictably, by the way, the American concept of libertarianism has little basis in the classical definitions, so we'll need to unpack the differences along the way. Mostly what I'm going to attempt to do, beyond defining it for primarily American audiences, and so our international unfuckers can wrap their heads around our special brand of it, is point out the natural alliance between libertarians and progressives. That I'm mostly saving for part two, though, because we have a lot of work to do prior. But I'll say that in terms of outcomes, the things that we desire from our policies and governance, I believe there's more common ground than it might appear on the surface. So if our mission at UNFTR is to create a broad coalition of citizens that are united through a shared language and understanding of issues, then this is a really important step in the process. And when we did our ISMS episode, like 99 said, you might recall that I deliberately excluded libertarians, primarily because it's a vague ideology with little to no practical application or historical reference point. Of course, the same can be said of Marxism and, as I've argued before, capitalism. But those of you who identify as libertarian will likely recoil at this characterization, so the burden of this proclamation is on me. And hopefully I can get us there. Chapter 1. From Jefferson and Payne to Charles and David Koch. When we did our episode on progressivism, we talked about how difficult it is to actually create a political party in the United States, at least one that can actually influence policy and legislation, one that can get on the ballots. 
So it has to be said that the fact that the Libertarian Party is recognized in 35 states is quite an accomplishment in and of itself. But it's only been an organized party since the early 1970s. Today, the party officially claims 355 elected representatives nationally, and according to the Libertarian Party's website, quote, as libertarians, we seek a world of liberty, a world in which all individuals are sovereign over their own lives, and no one is forced to sacrifice his or her values for the benefit of others, end quote. So that seems lovely. I mean, who doesn't love liberty? Who wants to live in a world where you're forced to sacrifice your values? There's a lot to love about the guiding principles of libertarianism, which have a tendency at times to read more like scripture than a political platform. There's a reason that this guy was actually a serious presidential candidate and helped attract millions to a party that only started in the 70s. We're talking, what, over a trillion dollar deficit. What would you cut? Okay, I would start with uh, military operations overseas. They hurt us and they hurt our national defense. And we can sp save hundreds of billions of dollars when you add up all the militarism and all the foreign aid and all the mischief we create. Why do we have troops in Korea and Japan, all these things? So you could save a lot. That wouldn't be enough. Then you have to start cutting spending on the programs that aren't essential, like the Department of Education. We spend a lot of money, it doesn't improve education. Department of Energy, we don't need Department of Energy. All those subsidies in Department of, of Agriculture, we don't need that. We don't need the intervention of the Department of, of Commerce. You can go on and on, but you don't have to go and cut uh, health care or medical care or Social Security in order to start getting our house in order. Unlike his dipshit son Rand, Ron Paul was an affable, intelligent, and principled figure in national politics. It can be argued that he did as much for the libertarian cause as Bernie did for progressives, though Bernie certainly held wider appeal and made it much further than Ron Paul ever did in a presidential bid. He had previously run as a libertarian candidate in 1988, but it was the 2008 and 12 campaigns on the Republican line that ignited interest in Paul and drew so many into the libertarian fold. There's also an argument that Paul helped popularize some of Bernie's shared stances on bloated military budgets and corporate welfare. But that won't work unless you're willing to cut spending. And I think the most popular place to cut is all the spending overseas and the corporate welfare in this country. Because most of the money that we spend here supposed to help the poor really helps the large corporations, say the housing bubble. Who got help? See, the rich got bailed out. They got bailed out both by the Congress and the Federal Reserve, and they were making all the profits. So it was its corporatism that is so bad. And whether it's medicine or even in education or the military industrial complex, it's corporatism. That is the welfare that is huge compared to the welfare of food stamp. Side note, who can forget the moment in the 2012 primary when Rick Perry asked Ron Paul for help remembering the name of the third agency he said that he would cut after education and commerce? The third agency of government, yeah. I, would, I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, commerce, and let's see, I can't. The third one, I can't, sorry. <laughs> Oops. Perry would, of course, go on to head the Department of Energy, the very agency he couldn't remember that he was going to eliminate entirely. The point of the story is that it was painfully clear that, of all the Republican candidates in 08 and 12, Ron Paul was probably the most intelligent and educated. But he was uninspiring and a little weird, and the establishment would have none of him. People also knew that while he danced around it during the campaigns, Paul was also in favor of privatizing things that people really love, like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. These are the stances that kind of confuse people and keep libertarianism somewhat on the fringe, though many of the core tenets of the party have found their way into the Republican Party, albeit in a very mean, perverted, and dangerous way. So what the hell is libertarianism? Well, at its core, libertarianism promotes individual liberty, freedom above all. Everyone should have the right to do what they please so long as it doesn't forcefully impact another. The individual reigns supreme in the libertarian mind. Collective thought and action is abhorrent. No rules are better than rules outside of basic commandments like stealing or acts of non-retaliatory violence. Taxation is force, a form of violence against the individual. So is anything that takes from you, like social security deductions or social safety net taxes, and gives to others when you didn't give your consent. 
The only role of the government is to protect individual property rights and to provide a common defense of the nation. Philosophical platitudes that are nearly impossible to reconcile in real-world scenarios, but are appealing nonetheless. One of the most public champions of libertarianism is David Bowes, an executive at the Cato Institute who has published a couple of versions of a book called The Libertarian Mind. Here he is giving an overview of the philosophy. Well, I define libertarian as the um, current manifestation of what was once called liberalism or classical liberalism. It wasn't called classical at the time. Now we call it classical. Liberal ideas are about freedom, individualism, individual rights, limited government to protect those things, free markets, freedom of religion, and so on. Again, all sounds reasonable, right? But let's dig deeper into some of the ways that Bose attempts to define libertarianism as an ideology, though after reading this book, it's clear that it's more of a religion than a political philosophy or an economic framework. Bose describes it by saying, quote, Libertarianism is the view that each person has the right to live his life in any way he chooses so long as he respects the equal rights of others. The only actions that should be forbidden by law are those that involve the initiation of force against those who have not themselves used force. Actions such as murder, rape, robbery, kidnapping, and fraud." End quote. He cites issues with other systems of governance by claiming they suppress incentives or create totalitarian regimes with too much concentration of power. And on the surface, these are defensible to a degree, but it's partly what makes it so appealing. Funding for social welfare programs, the things that we rely on to support the less fortunate among us, children, the elderly, temporarily unemployed people, the infirmed, anyone in need for a moment or a lifetime, are considered involuntary transfer payments. That's what they call them, transfer payments that are unjust and levied by force because they lack consent. So in Bose and others' minds, individual rights are natural rights, a familiar concept to unfuckers from our deep dives into Smith, Kinney, Beccaria, Ricardo, Bentham, and others. Now, these natural rights are spontaneous and inalienable and should be protected by the rule of law within limited government. Our economic system should be guided by the free markets, which are more able to produce an efficient and just economic outcome than systems influenced by central authorities. Now, when describing their worldviews in philosophical terms, libertarians like to invoke Adam Smith again, David Hume, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Paine. And like others, they interpret convenient or entirely theoretical bits and pieces of the great Enlightenment thinkers and claim them for their own. But they've updated their thinking and distinguished themselves in recent decades with more modern influences from Ayn Rand, Uncle Fuckbreath, Friedrich Hayek, and others. And in doing so, they've become increasingly dogmatic. So we've set the table with some of the basics that honestly don't sound all that bad on the surface. And I doubt there's an unfucker out there that's like, fuck liberty and freedom. I demand tyranny and will work to give everything away that I have. But again, that's what makes the simple philosophical underpinnings of libertarianism so appealing and comfortable. But to understand just how perverted some of their thinking has become, we need to understand the life and work of the unsung hero of the modern American Libertarian Party, who was relatively obscure until a historian named Nancy McLean came across his personal papers and went down a rather remarkable rabbit hole. In 1919, in the little town of Gum, Tennessee, James Buchanan was born. Now, I assume the town was called Gum, because ain't no one got any tupuses in that there part of the country. Anyways, James Buchanan done popped out of his mammy's vajayjay and would grow up to be a complete fucking asshole. This might be one of your more patronizing accents. Fair enough. Well... James Buchanan was comparatively well-off in Tennessee, though not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. The product of a hard-working farming family, Buchanan excelled at academics and worked hard as a young man, eventually attending Middle Tennessee State Teachers College. After college, he went on to receive a master's in economics from the University of Tennessee. And in his late 20s, he enrolled in a doctoral studies program at, can you guess? The University of Chicago in 1946, where he became enamored with the teachings of none other than Frank Knight, the mentor of Uncle Fucknoggin. 
Now, it should be noted that Buchanan's one redeeming feature, in my opinion, is that he too thought his colleague and contemporary Milton Friedman was a fucking asshole. Anyway, along the way, he was indoctrinated into the ways of the Mont Pelerin Society, the libertarian think tank founded by Friedrich Hayek. And if anyone needs a refresher on Mont Pelerin or U Chicago, make sure to go back and check out our Fuck Milton Friedman episode. So this asshole was learning the ropes from the shittiest people in the world who were determined to undermine Keynesian theory and unleash capitalism on the world via the free markets. But Buchanan had an even more doctrinal side of his personality. He was deeply political, and as much as he was by all accounts a brilliant man and a capable economist, he was first and foremost a political animal dead set on destroying democracy. Economics was just his weapon of choice. One of Buchanan's ideological heroes was John Calhoun. Now, you might also recall him from our procedural fuckery episode, the man responsible for creating and perfecting the filibuster in order to preserve the institution of slavery under the guise of protecting states' rights. And by the way, libertarians are often fond of states' rights arguments, though the real purists are just as critical of state and local governments. Anyway, it was Calhoun's arguments that informed Buchanan's ideas around fighting what he considered the most tyrannical law of his day, the federal law that was so violent and overreaching that he was willing to devote his entire life to fighting it and others like it, a law so blatantly opposed to freedom and liberty that he would go on to found the Thomas Jefferson Center for Political Economy and Social Philosophy at the University of Virginia to work, quote, subversively against countervailing powers like unions, government, and the tyrannical majority of Democratic voters, a law so terrifying that it would prompt Buchanan to lay the groundwork for an entire political party dedicated to ensuring such legislative horrors would never again be visited upon the land of the free and the home of the brave. Jesus Christ, what was the fucking law already? Oh, sorry. Uh, it was Brown versus the Board of Education. See, Buchanan thought that government had gone too far by demanding integration in the schools. You gotta be fucking kidding me. I am not. But let's press on, because understanding Buchanan's story is imperative to understanding the American concept of libertarianism in today's world. Buchanan became obsessed with turning back the tide of social reforms during the New Deal and civil rights eras. And any public policy that awarded anything to anyone was offensive to Buchanan, who believed that his privileged place in society and others like him was to be protected at all costs. Buchanan was propelled by others in the Mont Pelerin Society to devise ways to influence policy and shift the mindset of the nation. He had little interest in the political process. In fact, his idea was to tear it all down. And as Nancy McLean writes in her groundbreaking book on Buchanan titled Democracy in Chains, quote, what was happening in their view in the civil rights era and indeed the New Deal era before it was that the majority without the consent of the elite white minority was taking something they considered intrinsic to the promise of America, the protection of property rights. Those who had amassed the greatest amount of property often believed that they had made the largest contribution to developing the nation, which deepened their feeling of betrayal." End quote. Buchanan worked diligently at UVA to cultivate credibility and attract funds and was extremely successful for a time. But as the nation changed and Virginia softened its stance on social issues relative to their deep southern state counterparts, Buchanan eventually found himself at odds with the new leadership at UVA that wasn't as hell-bent on destroying democracy as he was. So he made the rather surprising decision to move across the country and was recruited by UCLA of all places. Needless to say, it was a mismatch from the start. But it was during his time in California that he would become close to like-minded conservative figures that were in Ronald Reagan's intimate circles. It was also during this time that he began to develop a theory that public education shouldn't be free. In fact, it should be costly because over time it would align students with economic incentives to be part of the capitalist system. There's no time to think about making the world a better place when you've got bills to pay. It would also serve to keep riffraff out of education to preserve the elite order of society. I told you he was an asshole. Eventually, Buchanan fled the West and went back toward his southern roots and found himself back in Virginia, only this time at Virginia Tech, where he remained for more than a decade. And it was here 
that he linked up with the man who had set his ideas into motion in the real world, Charles Koch. With the financial backing of Charles Koch and his brother David, Buchanan began building a center and attracting more like-minded intellectuals to his cause. And at Buchanan's behest, the work would appear erudite and academic, all the while building a, quote, vast network of political power that will be the establishment. And the key to this was to do it all quietly and secretly. But you, like an idiot, wanted to take over the world. And you don't realize there is no world anymore. They would start by establishing think tanks to produce papers for the media and policymakers. These think tanks would create model bills to be circulated around the nation at every level of government, each one designed to chip away at sacred cows of the social state. Then they would train teachers to take jobs at community colleges to gradually take over curriculum and introduce their ideas. They called their effort the Third Century Project, and it spread like wildfire. To Charles Koch, Buchanan was more useful than economists like Greenspan and even Milton Friedman, who he considered sellouts for trying to, quote, make government work more efficiently when the true libertarian should be tearing it out at the root, end quote. Charles Koch didn't want limited government and personal liberty. He wanted no government and corporate tyranny. Using Buchanan's books and papers as a guide, Koch made every idea a reality the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank that even conservatives feared, the Heritage Foundation, the Reason Foundation, one after the other, the Koch network funded think tanks designed to rip apart social safety nets, eliminate taxes on the wealthy, defund agencies designed to protect the air, water, food, drugs, you name it. The market could protect us better, they argued, when in reality, the Koch brothers were buying the new intellectual class and forcing them to create policy rationales that would eliminate any and every obstacle to their accumulation of wealth. But once Jane Mayer outed the Cokes, first in the New Yorker magazine in a piece that was like a shot heard around the world, and then in her incredible book, Dark Money, which we've referenced before on the show, the Cokes' secret was out, and no one gave a shit. Well, maybe they gave a shit, but their dark money influence had grown so substantially and their policies had taken over so completely by this time, no, nobody cared. Coming out of the shadows with zero repercussions only served to embolden the Cokes and others to do more and do it overtly. And by this time, they were in complete control of Buchanan's circle of influential intellectuals and it moved them to a backwater two-year hillbilly college that started out in a fucking strip mall. George Mason University was the new petri dish for Coke-style libertarian thinking, and it was attracting a lot of money and a lot of attention. So complete was their takeover of Buchanan's enterprise that Buchanan himself grew frustrated at the complete lack of integrity in their fundraising efforts, mostly done by a wicked woman named Wendy Graham, the wife of Phil Graham, one of the architects of financial deregulation that led to the complete collapse of the American economy. But that's for another day. They're just truly one of the worst fucking couples that ever lived. Anyway, Buchanan was eventually cast aside by the Cokes because his secrecy was no longer necessary. And because he was so secretive throughout his career and lived in the long shadows of Hayek and Friedman, Buchanan eventually retired and would die in obscurity until Nancy McLean put him right back on the fucking map. Side note, if you want to hear from her directly, Pitchfork Economics actually re-ran an interview a couple weeks ago with her from 2020. And if you want to learn more about Buchanan, you can order a copy of her book, in our bookshop. UNFTR. Chapter 2 Ideological Iterations. I felt the need to go deeper than normal in our little Buchanan story because it helps to illustrate one of the central themes of this episode. And that's this That you hate freedom? Despise liberty? Uh, no. That libertarianism, as we have come to understand it in America, isn't a real ideology with a practical basis for policy or economics. That the version that we've been sold was just that. Sold. Bought and paid for by a handful of wealthy individuals who played a long game to destroy our democracy by painting all government as tyrannical and private enterprise as the only path to liberty and freedom, the two words most closely associated with American libertarianism. 
And as we'll explore in more detail, there are several doctrinal versions of libertarianism that are variations on certain fundamental themes but wholly perverted by the moneyed elite who sought to replace one form of tyranny, one that provides a system of balance and opportunity to citizens in a functioning fucking democracy, with another form of corporate tyranny that places power in the hands of a small minority of corporate despots. I know I'm nowhere close to convincing someone who identifies as libertarian in today's world that they're praying to a false idol, but this groundwork has to be laid. So with that, let's briefly run through the most notable sects of libertarianism to build a framework of understanding. And this is not an exhaustive list, but it's an exhausting one. Anarcho-capitalism. Anarcho-capitalists believe governments monopolize services that would be better left to corporations and should be abolished entirely in favor of a system where corporations provide services we associate with the government. Civil libertarianism. Civil libertarians believe the government should not pass laws that restrict, oppress, or selectively fail to protect people in their day-to-day -day lives. Their position can best be summed up by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' statement that, quote, a man's right to swing his fist ends where my nose begins, end quote. In the United States, the American Civil Liberties Union represents the interests of civil libertarians. They may or may not also be fiscal libertarians. Anyway. Classical liberalism. Classical liberals agree with the words of the Declaration of Independence, that all people have basic human rights and the sole legitimate function of government is to protect those rights. Now, most of the founding fathers and most of the European philosophers who influenced them were classical liberals. It should be noted that most of the Chicago School economists and the Mont Pelerin Society members are most closely associated with this form of libertarianism, at least in their minds, but not in practice. Fiscal libertarianism. Fiscal libertarians, also referred to as laissez-faire capitalists, believe in free trade, low non-existent taxes, minimal or non-existent corporate regulation. Most traditional Republicans are moderate fiscal libertarians. Again, the Chicago boys would also align with this as well because it strictly applies to economic thinking and excludes other forms of public and foreign policy. Geolibertarianism. So these are also referred to as, quote, one-taxers. They're fiscal libertarians who believe that land can never be owned, but may be rented. They generally propose the abolition of all income and sales taxes in favor of a single land rental tax, with the revenue used to support collective interests such as military defense, as determined through a democratic process. Now, this is all a bit fanciful and has no practical application, but you can begin to fully spot how libertarian strains differ in other parts of the world. Libertarian Socialism. Libertarian socialists agree with anarcho-capitalists that government is a monopoly and should be abolished. But they believe that nations should be ruled instead by work-share cooperatives or labor unions instead of corporations. So our beloved Noam Chomsky is the best-known American libertarian socialist, although it should also be noted that he recognizes the incompatibility of this philosophy within any current economic structure in the world and is wholly theoretical. Minarchism. Like anarcho-capitalists and libertarian socialists, minarchists believe that most functions currently served by the government should be served by smaller, non-government groups. At the same time, however, they believe that government is still needed to serve a few collective needs, such as military defense. I feel like most of the younger libertarian voices that you hear on college campuses or screaming at people on call-in shows can be classified as minarchists. And it's kind of weird, though, because they believe in creatures that have the head of a bull and the body of a man. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure those are minotaurs, not minarchists. Anyway, neo-libertarianism. Neo-libertarians are fiscal libertarians who support a strong military and believe that the U.S. government should use that military to overthrow dangerous and oppressive regimes. It's their emphasis on military intervention that distinguishes them from paleo-libertarians, who we'll get to in a second, and gives them a reason to make common cause with neoconservatives. Objectivism. Ah, yes, these fucking douchebags. The objectivist movement was founded by the Russian-American novelist Ayn Rand, author of Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead, who incorporated fiscal libertarianism into a broader philosophy emphasizing rugged individualism and what she called the virtue of selfishness. Now, if you'd like our feelings on Rand, check out our episode titled Ayn Rand Was a Dick. It's pretty self-explanatory, I suppose. And lastly, paleo-libertarianism. 
Paleo-libertarians differ from neo-libertarians in that they are isolationists who do not believe that the United States should become entangled in international affairs. They also tend to be suspicious of international coalitions such as the United Nations, liberal immigration policies, and other potential threats to cultural stability. The paleo comes from their practice of eating the flesh of social democrats. So step one when engaging with a libertarian is to be sure to ask them what kind, and if they give you a blank stare, then you know they have no fucking idea what this means. On the other hand, if they're able to identify one of these strains, you better buckle up and be prepared to engage at warp speed because they're probably locked and loaded with a whole bunch of theoretically tyrannical situations like mask wearing and smoking in restaurants and ready to throw out highly selective Jefferson and Payne quotes completely out of context. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Chapter 3. Deconstructing the Libertarian Mind. So what I was describing was the real Adam Smith and the real Thomas Jefferson and so on, who were anti-capitalist and called for equality and thought that people shouldn't be subjected to wage labor because that's destructive of their humanity and that uh, and the real Adam Smith, who said that uh, uh, you, a government, in, in any civilized society, something has to be done to prevent a uh, division of labor because it will turn people into creatures as stupid and as ignorant as possible for a human to be, and who advocated markets only on the grounds that under perfect liberty it would lead to perfect equality. Okay, that's the traditional libertarian tradition that I've been talking about. Now that we know several of the strains of libertarianism, let's go a little deeper into the mind of the modern American libertarian. My goal for next week is to drill deeper into specific policies that have grown out of the increasingly warped sense of this ideology, so let's lay a few more building blocks to understand just how the principal agents of libertarianism think and how it leaves them open to believing that the policy measures they currently espouse might seem aligned while being wholly anachronistic and impractical when confronted by real-world examples. We'll dig into just a handful of them to illuminate their thinking and listen to the words and ideas that inspire them. For example, Baltimore-based journalist and legendary cynic and satirist H.L. Mencken has long been a favorite of libertarians. Here's Mencken in raw form from his book Notes on Democracy, published in 1926. The fact is that liberty, in any true sense, is a concept that lies quite beyond the reach of the inferior man's mind. He can imagine, and even esteem in his way, certain false forms of liberty. For example, the right to choose between two political mountebanks and to yell for the more obviously dishonest. But the reality is incomprehensible to him. And no wonder, for genuine liberty demands of its votaries a quality he lacks completely, and that is courage. The man who loves it must be willing to fight for it. Blood, said Jefferson, is its natural manure. The free man is one who has won a small and precarious territory from the great mob of his inferiors. And long before Mencken, Thomas Paine wrote in Rights of Man that Society grants him nothing. Every man is a proprietor in society and draws upon the capital as a matter of right. These very general ideas weren't enough to build out a platform or a party, and as McLean writes, he, meaning Buchanan, understood that cultivating thinkers who could alter the public conversation was essential to the quest to transform the political economy in a lasting way. So as he built a network and devised policy documents to influence the discourse, Buchanan and his colleagues would pull together luminaries from the Chicago School and others such as conservative icon William F. Buckley Jr. into think tanks and organizations designed to influence public policy and opinion. They would pull together to back candidates like Barry Goldwater, an important figure in their movement because he appealed to conservatives and Southern racists through the newly formed language of libertarianism. Goldwater's was more thinly cloaked than what the movement would become once the Koch brothers got involved, but it was all a proving ground that these ideas could infiltrate the public imagination. All of the reforms during the New Deal era that seemed necessary and humane to most Americans would be painted as vile and reprehensible, unwanted measures visited upon us by a tyrannical force. And in the worldview of these intellectuals determined to revert back to a system where the moneyed elite carried the most influence, they were. Of course, they seem to miss the tyrannical aspect of the wealthy minority imposing their will on the majority, but that, to them at least, was the definition of freedom.
As we've covered before, these ideas were coming of age during a time when public sentiment was turning against the government and the business class had enough. Enough regulation, enough taxation, enough of the giveaways to the poor. As the Powell memo suggested rather overtly, it was time for big business to start fighting on the front foot and get out of a defensive and conciliatory posture. As figures such as Powell found themselves in positions of influence and prominence, gradually the tide did begin to turn. Let's take a few more examples from Bose's work to see how the shift began in earnest. Quote, there is almost always work available at a wage sufficient to sustain life, though minimum wage laws, taxes, and other government interventions may reduce the number of jobs. Buchanan and Koch's libertarian think tanks started to chip away at the so-called government interventions because they impeded their ability to do whatever the fuck they wanted. But these interventions were established here and other parts of the world when capitalist systems were failing repeatedly, culminating in the Great Depression. But this time in American history was becoming a distant memory and fewer Americans were connected to this era in the 80s and 90s when their work began to really take hold. The underpinnings of the modern economic system and the safety nets that were instituted did a far better job protecting wages and sustaining life than ever before. Quote, for those who really can't find work, there are relatives and friends available to help. This is one of those areas that ultimately derailed the candidacy of Ron Paul, for example. See, libertarians came to believe that if you're sick, you can go to the family doctor or ask someone for help. If you're out of work, you could just move in with a relative. It's a parochial and communal view of the world that might have worked when there were 3 million people, but it completely falls apart when the same landmass is supporting 350 million people. Not to mention, again, that during periods of enormous economic distress, entire communities can find themselves out of work or out of options. Some libertarians have even gone so far as to claim that dying in a free system is the ultimate expression of liberty because no one was forced to assist someone that might have otherwise been saved. Quote, the greatest libertarian crusade in history was the effort to abolish chattel slavery. I mean, this is fucked on so many levels, but Bose is taking credit for it, so I suppose we have to address it. First off, libertarians love to quote Thomas Jefferson, the slave owner, a Southern politician who defended states' rights and the institution of slavery until his dying day. And we already know that John Calhoun was the political hero of Jim Buchanan. So you can't have these guys as figureheads of your fucking movement and claim that libertarianism was at the core of the abolition movement. Remember that in principle, the founding fathers like Jefferson did believe in liberty, but this only extended to a privileged few white, male, wealthy landowners. In this way, people like the Kochs are indeed aligned with Jefferson, but you can't retroactively claim that the spirit and intent of your ideology was responsible for ending the practice of slavery. Fucking dicks. Quote, if people acquired their property justly, then they are entitled to it. Okay, let's start with the fact that exactly zero land or property in America was acquired justly. It was all taken but what this concept attempts to reinforce is property acquired fairly, whether it's physical property or land, in a scenario that implies consent between parties where neither side was forcibly stripped of the property, then it's yours and you can do whatever the fuck you please with it. See, this concept is the rabbit hole because again, in practical application, it begins to fall apart. For example, you can build a ton of shit in Texas without a permit or a fucking plan, but try doing that in Manhattan. It doesn't fucking work because there are 8 million people on a postage stamp. The Koch brothers acquired land and exploited it for fossil resources, but their land use practices caused great harm in terms of industrial pollution, which they've always claimed is their right to do. So this is the concept that we're going to have to dig into much deeper in part two, because there are traps all around in the argument, but libertarians absolutely hold some high ground in the discussion as well. So it's a balancing act and we'll get there. Quote, other people, mostly on the political left, would argue that the right to life means that everyone has a fundamental right to the necessities of life. Food, clothing, shelter, medical care, maybe even an eight-hour workday or two weeks of vacation. But if the right to life means that, then it means that one person has a right to force other people to give him things, violating their equal rights. Ay, ay, ay. Well, this gets to the heart of their economic arguments and illustrates why they're so in love with the Industrial Revolution. Bose casually brushes off this period saying, quote, Charles Dickens bemoaned the already waning practice of child labor that kept alive many children who in earlier eras would have died, end quote. Death is part of life, right? So just fucking deal with it. 
Child labor was a problem, but the market figured it out after a few decades, so what's the big fucking deal? Food isn't a right. It's something you have to get for yourself. Same with healthcare, same with shelter. These are the core ideas that we really need to explore if we're going to agree on what makes a society whole, healthy, and functional. Somehow, in a nation of 350 million people living on a planet with 8 and soon to be 10 billion people, we need to come to an understanding of what it means to be a society and how we can incorporate some of the ideas of personal freedoms and liberty while acknowledging that this system, any system for that matter, will by definition leave members of its society behind and in need. I don't care whether it's Marxism, capitalism, or libertarianism, none of which have ever truly existed, by the way. There is no such thing as a one-size-fits-all economic and political science. Fuck James Buchanan. Rand Paul isn't half the man his father is. Plant fuckers rule. Here endeth part one of the lesson. The show notes calling our listeners one by one. Show notes, bloopers, and thank yous. It's so much fun. Hoo-ha! All right. That's the end of part one on Buckers. Not sure if any libertarians are still with us, but hopefully, hopefully they are, and they'll return in part two, where we'll do our kumbaya, bring it all together, happy horseshit, let's all be together as one United States of America. For Book Love, Libertarian Mind by David Bowes, Dark Money by Jane Mayer, never get enough of that book, Democracy in Chains by Nancy McLean. Notes on Democracy by H.L. Mencken, and Rights of Man by Thomas Paine, which you, if you haven't read it, you just need to read it. Just required reading. And for Pod Love, as you heard up top, Straight White American Jesus, 99, if you get a chance, I think it was like two or three episodes ago, they have a woman on the show that went deep undercover into MAGA country and just kind of recorded meetings at bars and rallies and restaurants and hotels and shit like that. She did it for a year and she would like submit audio to other podcasts and everything. It is fucking terrifying. It is such a good episode, but it really showed like she met some dude at a bar who's like kind of influential in his state and like knows a bunch of Congress people and he's an organizer. And she's like, well, what's your vision? And he's like, kind of like a more like Nazi Germany, but but a little nicer. But this is a dude who, like, runs an organization, like, just crazy, crazy stuff, the things that they admit. Anyway, so check that out. And, of course, Pitchfork Economics had uh, Nancy McLean on recently. It was an episode that originally aired, I think, in 2020. But you'll find it, I think it was January 4th of um, 2022. You can find the episode that has her on it, and she explains the book and goes into great detail. Anyway, she's awesome. And uh, that's it. Now, next week... We're going to do a deeper dive into how the ideology has worked its way into consciousness and policy. And we'll take a look at some of the prominent celebrated figures of libertarianism, like fucking Elon Musk and others, and discuss why I truly believe there's a very natural alliance between progressives and libertarians at the core, if we can all just agree on some fundamentals. And we're also going to have a chance to do some callbacks to a few episodes, including our vegan episode, believe it or not. And on that note, 99, overall, would you say you were pleased with the way that the show came out and the feedback that we received? Because the plant fucker community is yours to care for and tend to. So I want to make sure that you were really happy with that. Yeah, I was super pleased. So many people said we opened their minds to thinking in a new way. And so many people are going to restart being a vegetarian or a vegan or try to introduce it into their lives. So I couldn't ask for anything more, really. Do you think we touched on ground that was um, not surprising, but like, like how we we set the show up was the approach that you came from was was from an ethical standpoint and a moral standpoint. And, you know, you and I had that. Uh, it wasn't push and pull. It was just trying to find like, well, what's going to be the natural lane for you and FTR to explore this? Do you feel like people appreciated that, but also got new knowledge and information in the way that, that it was framed? Yeah, definitely. People don't typically respond well to, to preaching of veganism. That's why there's so many jokes about it. So I think this, taking it from this perspective, framed in a way where even if you don't care about animals, you know, if you care about climate change and the environment and all those things, I mean, you can't really deny the facts that we presented. 
Well, I'm sure we'll, uh, you know, I haven't gone through uh, comments that you pulled together here, but I'm sure we'll trip over a few here and there. So um, why don't we get into it? We had, uh, again, a slew of new members that came in through buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. These members are going to support our efforts to continue doing this on a weekly basis. And hopefully, as we teased come February, dropping a few more elements more often, but during the week. This is something we're, that 99 and I are going to experiment with, and uh, Manny's going to turn into magic. So anyway, thank you for these donations. It's an incredible show of support uh, so that we can keep doing the work that we're doing as often uh, and as uh, high quality as we've been doing it, at least in some of your estimations. So to our new members, we've got Emma W. Thank you, Emma. Charlotte Big Sky, who's been around for a while, she's uh, maybe almost an original unfucker, has come in and said, uh, my favorite podcast, always enjoy the show. Thank you, Charla. Uh, Sam is now a member, been listening for several months, looking forward to it. As a vegan, I appreciated the most recent episode. Good deal. Louis A.S. is now a member who kind of applauded our research behind every episode. Christopher A. is now a member. Nurse Mary is a member and said... Love the plant fucker show. I agree that consumers must create demand for more sustainable food. However, as you know, many people live in food deserts and don't have options. This is so true. Andy L. is now a member. Was sent to us from Best of the Left. They actually sprung for some coffee a few months ago. And the vegan episode pushed them over the edge. All right, here's the feedback coming, 99. Allie K. is now a member and loves the show. And Kat became a member. Happy to be a little unfucker joining you, Manny, and here we go. 99, my fave in this journey. How many people so far have said that? So I think Manny and I just need to fucking disappear at this point. It's just, you got to have your own show. 99's problems. That's right. Uh, and Max ain't one of them. Please consider, oh, please consider covering the FBI, COINTELPRO, and the successful disruption of movements like AIM and the Black Panthers. Yes. Hey, Kat, if you get a chance and you're not already plugged into it, check out our, I'll call it a sister show because it's a Manny Faces production, but check out Newsbeat. Uh, I know for a fact that they did a COINTELPRO episode that was just outstanding. And they have... I think they've dug into like Fred Hampton's murder and um, and they've definitely done some shows on uh, the FBI and the encroachment on civil liberties. So check out Newsbeat. And that is that. Thank you to all the members. Appreciate you more than you know. 99. What's going on on Facebook? Yeah, so the Unfuckers weighed in a lot on our plant-based episode. So Kyle C., who is one of the first people to request a vegan episode and, and write in, said, I was so excited this morning when I saw the title of the episode. You had me hanging on every word. It's a subject that has so many angles that you could cover hours discussing, but this episode was well done and to the point. Oh, I'm glad Kyle dug it. Yeah. Jim M. said, just listen to this latest podcast. Great job. I see Jana A. also weighed in over on Facebook, and she dropped a couple of resources in here, so we'll just mention them. Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown. Jana says it's an easy read that outlines the author's journey to converting using mob grazing no-till cover crops. Hmm. I wanted to tell Jana actually to check out a movement called Veganic Farming. It's kind of growing in popularity now. It's sort of similar in ethos to, to what mob grazing and, and what you mentioned did, except that it doesn't use any animals. So people are finding ways to use the animals in a way to like regenerate the land, which it's a move in the right direction. However, for some vegans, you know, this is like animal labor. So even though they're there, they're still working and there's still animal output to produce, like let's say vegetables. And they sort of still have animal products in them, more or less. So veganic farming is this movement to not use any animals at all. And that way it's sort of very pure vegan food that you, you get. So Jenna, I think you'd be interested in that if you were interested in the episode. So now the animals don't even have to work? I mean, what kind of complete Marxist society are you trying to build? They're freeloaders. They're going to just be the takers and freeloaders like Ayn Rand said. Yep, that's exactly. I can't get behind that. I'm an objectivist now. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Nathan E., re this resonates with me because he said, I considering myself a flexitarian for some time, but I didn't have a word for it until today. Love you, Max, Manny, and 99. Thanks for continually bringing the noise. That uh, resonated with me because, you know, in full disclosure, I'm not a uh, vegan or a vegetarian uh, and not even probably a very good flexitarian up until this point. But 99 has um, has great power over me and my daily life and my thoughts. Uh, she continually experiments with mind control and thought control. And um, it's her world, as you can tell, and I'm just living in it. So 
Uh, can't get all the way there yet. Going to take me a little while, but trying really, really hard. So I would consider myself more in the flexitarian camp since we put that episode together. But it's amazing after doing uh, more of the research and really just thinking out loud about it and rolling it around with you for several months, how obsessed one can get with it in a positive way. It's, it's um, anyway, I just, I really thank you for bringing up the idea to do it and introducing why it's such a powerful concept and why it wholly aligns with what the mission of the show is. Because originally I did not see it and I pushed back on 99, which she was like, we, we have to get there. And I was like, I just, what's the lane? How are we going to stay true to what Unfucking the Republic does? And having gone through it now, I feel like it might be the most down the lane Unfucking show that we've done so far. So anyway, just another chance to say thank you to 99. You're welcome. Thank you to all the cows out there for being so cute. Mm. That was good. Thanks. Cows love, cows are basically just big dogs. I don't know if you knew that. You ever watch videos of cows? They just <laughs> run around and they love to like lay down in your lap and get head scratches. <gasps> They're just big dogs. It's amazing. Head scratches? They do. They love head scratches. What's a head scratch? Like a little, you know, like a, you know, like you pet a dog. Like that's a head mm. scratch. They're very, oh. they're very loving animals. And pigs are smarter than dogs. Fun fact. Not my dog. My dog can open the door. I've met your dog. <laughs> my dog can open the door. She's a little bit of a doofus. She's not a doofus. Yes, she is. Oh my my dogs are doofuses too, so I get it. But just your dog's tall enough to open the door, but she's a little bit of a doofus. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Keep going. In here. the best way. <laughs> um, Whiskey Daisy said, thank you for this new episode. Listen today and shared, hoping that I can persuade some friends to listen as well. They said, I don't think we often look at food in the same way because it's a necessity, but the discussion about overproduction and waste reminded me very much of fast fashion. Mm. We did discuss fast fashion on our corporate responsibility episodes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. We didn't get into it in, in show detail. Notes. But we, I think it was part of the episode. I think there were some um, things that you could do, you know, like rent clothes instead of buying clothes. And part of that was about. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yep. That was part of the text. Yeah. So uh, I'll link those out to you, Whiskey. But um, no, you're totally right. Fast fashion is a, a huge issue. Uh, there's I read some stat the other day about how much water goes into producing clothes. It's, it's so much. There's so much water waste there. And there's hundreds of millions of pounds every year of clothes thrown out. Mm. Scott C. loved this episode, saying it wasn't preachy or pedantic. Cool. I love that. I appreciate that comment very much. Aaron said the most insane thing about food in the USA is the breath taking wastage. Yeah. Well, globally, right? The, a third of all food produced yeah. is winds up wasted. Yeah. And yet we still have hungry people. The fuck? There's a, a cool app. We should have mentioned it called Too Good To Go. Oh, yeah. It's basically almost like seamless, let's say, or DoorDash, but instead of going on and being like, okay, I want to order, you know, or I want to Uber Eats McDonald's, you go on the app and there are restaurants that participate in this around you and you can buy like I think they have mystery boxes or you can buy you basically buy food that they would be throwing out and for a lot lot less it's a huge discount right yes yeah, so it's like it's completely edible it's you know sometimes fresh but businesses have rules and whatever I mean you've all seen videos about like Dunkin Donuts throwing out all their donuts at the end of the day because that's just like what the rules are so this app has stepped in to kind of mitigate that and you can buy that food love it and our last Facebook comment is from Cam J who actually got food poisoning from a burger joint many, many years ago and then couldn't stomach the smell of cooking beef for about 15 years after that. And people would fuck with Cam and say Cam was being difficult. And we got to stop that. You know, we have to stop like food shaming people and saying that they're difficult. Um, even though, you know, back in the day when we had a whole bunch of people at the office, it's always impossible to include 99 in a lunch order. <laughs> <laughs> I was always fine with a salad. <laughs> but no, I, I I liked Cam's comment because they said that um, the cultural ego surrounding beef seems very wrapped up with toxic masculinity, caveman shit. I 100% agree. There is some weird, I don't know what it is in our culture about meat and manliness. And it is very toxic. And I keep alluding to it, but people making vegan jokes. Honestly, I get more flack. I get more flack than I give people about eating meat. Like people, when they hear don't eat meat, they're making fun of me and they're being like, well, what if you were on a desert island and the only <laughs> thing was a cow? And I'm like, I'm not engaging with you with that. When is that going to happen? 
stop putting me in these hypothetical situations. It's it's true. So more more meat eaters try to push meat on me than I'm like go vegan. Realistically, we just need to respect whatever anyone wants to eat as long as it's not harming them. You know, so I, I liked what Cam J had to say. Uh Twitter. Now, I don't fuck with Twitter all that much, but let's uh, let's start over there. You know that's 99's purview. Tommy Lee Meyer loved the veganism episode, especially the part about uh, farming seaweed at Instigate Utopia. Is that right? Longtime vegetarian here. Great episode. Thanks for focusing on economics and not preaching. Hashtag FMF and fuck Monsanto too. Agreed. Did you like the Monsanto song I put into the episode? I did. Thank you for that. <laughs> I mean, I didn't love the way he sings Monsanto. He's <laughs> a horrible voice to begin with, but you know. What? But, excuse me? Oh, you heard me. What are you going to do? Put no, I don't feel bad that I called your dog a doofus. You just said that Neil Young has a horrible voice. Yeah. He's like Bob Dylan. I mean. Stop. These are. He's not Jeff Buckley. What? That's not even a, not even a one-to-one. What? Compare, that's what do you just mean? not. Why would you? Apples and oranges. Well, they're both. They were both. May you know, God rest his soul. But I mean, Jeff was a poet, right? Son of a poet, even. I mean, wrote beautiful, beautiful words and sang like an angel. I'm, Neil's a poet. You know, Bob Dylan's a poet. They can't okay. sing for fucking shit. It's like Willie Nelson can't sing for shit, but it's just a thing. It's like, okay. What What is this tirade? I will say, Neil Young's voice did not sound great there. It was more recent. Monsanto! <laughs> Bob Dylan also, yes, his voice <laughs> has gone. Both of them, beautiful voices in what? their prime. <laughs> You're high. Bob Dylan was my first concert. Don't fuck with me. Bob Dylan and Willie, Willie Nelson. You know actually. what mine was? Dr. Hook. How about that, bitch? Okay, so you're a hundred. I'm not a hot. <clears throat> Keep going with Twitter. <laughs> Berkey gal said, "If you haven't listened to this podcast, try it. Thanks for covering being vegan and the importance for a more plant-centered diet. Fifteen years vegan." And then Esoke said, "This was a pretty eye-opening episode, and it's making me look into more plant-based eating. Check it out, guys." Hey, uh, Instagram, our buddy Celtic Apache. Uh, love the episode and all the work you do. Thanks for inspiring this one, 99. <laughs> love that Celtic Apache. And uh, Mini Doll said, again, thanks, 99. That's me. Five years vegetarian, two years vegan. Wow. Wish I listened to you sooner. Great episode. Cool. And over on email, you can also fill out contact forms on our website, by the way, unftr.com. Uh, so email or contact form gets to us either way. Maria from Puerto Rico, who you know is a very good friend of the show, said she enjoyed the vegan podcast very much. And admires 99's trajectory into veganism at a young age, guessing that 99 is probably around the same generation or in the same generation as her daughter. And she says she appreciates that you young women have a very different perspective on things. I love that. And I love Maria from Puerto Rico, too. Uh, Bobby McD. I, I saw this one come in. <laughs> uh, your vegan episode is easily. I love him. Your vegan episode is easily the best this year. Uh, but seriously, balanced, smart, and truthful as ever. And he goes on. And then the future may not be so bleak apart from your Irish accent. What the actual fuck, dude? I feel like sending you a sound file on how it should sound. And I may do so. Uh, but in the spirit of goodwill, I have no bone to pick with you. It's kind of funny how your other voice work is so excellent. I guess everyone has their limit. I really do struggle with Scottish, Irish, those, uh, all those UK accents. Your Scottish is okay because you can mimic. It's all right. It's not bad. Yeah. When you spend more time, we have a Scottish friend. When you spend more time, hi to this Scottish friend who I think is probably listening. He's honestly the greatest. I know. I'm, I love him. And I miss him. Me too. Uh, Atomic Dog, another great friend of the show, sent a quick thank you to the UNFTR team and especially 99. Well done in the vegan episode. Learned a lot. Thank you, Atomic Dog. Uh, send in some uh, other things here, including uh, what about the rare earth mineral mining going into solar panels and batteries? Oh, yeah, man. I've been planning on putting solar panels on my roof now. I'm not so sure. Any chance you can consider those topics? So... Yeah, we actually, one of the things that we went over in our climate industrial complex episode was 
how we haven't even begun to address or really, really think about from a policy standpoint what the fuck we are going to do when all of, you know, in disposing all of the waste from manufacturing batteries, and solar, and all of this stuff. And there will be a ton of it. And it is not, does not break down in the environment. So this is going to be a huge problem. More to Atomic Dog's point, though, the rare earth minerals, the way that we extract them is dangerous and poisonous. And it kills, I mean, it literally kills the people that do it. And of course, we're, you know, gutting countries in Latin America and uh, Africa for those natural resources and uh, not even thinking about, you know, anybody's personal health or planetary health or any of those things. So I will say this, Atomic Dog, we've got an energy episode on the books focusing mostly on fossil fuel, but it will have to veer into uh, renewables. And I promise to uh, make that part of it so that we can kind of do this together. So thanks for putting that out there. Drew J said, anytime I feel optimistic about the future of the Republic, I remember that by 2040, 70% of Americans will live in 15 states. That means 70% of Americans will be represented by 30 senators, while the remaining 30% of the country will enjoy representation by 70. Huh. There's no way a constitutional amendment would ever be passed as it would require the support of those living in the least populous 35 states to give up their disproportionate power. I see balkanization in our future, along with the violence and war that comes with such things. I've tried and I tried, and I don't see any way to avoid it. Um, <laughs> I punted on that constitutional amendment episode. Maybe it's time to uh, put that back on the board. Drew's bringing up some really salient, haunting, and powerful points here. So... <laughs> In our procedural fuckery episode, for example, we were talking about the filibuster, how it got there, why it was important for a while, why it needs to go. We were also discussing how the Senate was designed to be sort of the governor cap, cap our speed as a nation to make sure that, uh, you know, populism didn't get too out of control. And already, to Drew's point, we're seeing how even that is not really such a great and, and effective measure. We have we have problems. Uh, the redistricting issue, the issue of the uh, you know the procedural elements of uh, the filibuster, for example, the Senate fucking parliamentarian being able to kind of squ- squash democracy uh, with the stroke of a pen, and even just our electoral college system, which is really what Drew's more representing here. There's a lot of problems there. So the big answer that we've been giving that is not admittedly a perfect answer is that we're not going to win the procedural battle. We're not going to win the ground game to change the Constitution, the Electoral College, the filibuster, how many justices are on the Supreme Court. So keep listening closely to this libertarian two-parter. Think about what Buchanan was able to accomplish over a long period of fucking time. This didn't happen overnight. Think about this long game that the Koch brothers and others have played. It's pretty interesting stuff. We're going to need our own long game. What can we accomplish by 2040 together? The reason the whole premise of the show, the whole rationale behind it, is that we're not going to fix those things, but we can change people's minds. Just like the Koch brothers did James Buchanan, Milton Friedman, Lewis Powell, Ayn Rand, all of the fuckers that worked hard to destroy everything that we built and everything that we could be and all of the power and the potential of America, which was never perfect. They did it because they worked together in concert. It's why I don't want to lose libertarians from this show. Legitimately. So yeah, Drew, on the numbers, you are right. But don't give up. And for the libertarians listening, stay with us. It's good stuff coming. Eva G. I use the Overcast app to listen to your podcast, which doesn't give me the option to rate and review. Okay. So I figured I'd send you an email to say I fucking love your podcast so fucking much. 10 out of 5 stars. Oh, thank you, Eva G. That is awesome. Casey, 
is a bottle fucker and a plant fucker. Dig it. I don't know why no one suggested toe fucker. Tofu meme. Tofuker. <laughs> so tofu fucker. Actually, Manny Faces, I believe, came in with an 11th hour toe fucker. Did he not? Wasn't that his invention? It might have been, but there's absolutely no way I'd be called a toe fucker. <laughs> it's the worst of everything. I don't care what it, what kind of portmanteau it is. Absolutely not. Totally different show. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I tried the unfuck your morning and unfuck your afternoon roasts, and I absolutely love them. I work for a gourmet coffee company. So I get my favorite coffee for free, but the native coffee roasters, UNFTR coffee, is so good that I still buy it. You see? Amy, the native roaster, killing it with Big Mama, her roasting machine. She feels it. She feels that thing roasted. She loves it. Every batch is perfect. And eating waste over on Substack. Okay. I think we do need to worry about the co-optation of veganism by corporations that, yeah, that only have interest in furthering their bottom line just as they did for organic. Yes. Very true. Uh, John S. said another informative podcast. Just the nudge I needed to start down the plant fucker path. Cool. Dana L. just stopping by to say I listened to the vegan episode twice. I've decided to become vegetarian as a way to do my part for the critters in the earth. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. She said, I'm sure 99 will be pleased. I was pleased. I am pleased. I smiled very big when I saw that email come in. That's so cool. Thank you, Dana. My friend Dana. And we had one review, but it was a great one, from the Ugandan. Found the podcast through my wonderful family on Pod Save the People. Give some pod love for these guys, please. You got it. Listen to Pod Save the People on the Crooked Media Network. 99, so glad that you joined UNFTR. Joined us on air, that is, I should say, because 99, uh, Manny and I have been together from the beginning. But 99 brings the zest, the umami, and the we've got this to the pod. Dig it. Max, thank you for not becoming a lobbyist. I can't imagine my week without some UNFTR and Manny Faces. Your craft is phenomenal. We can all agree with that. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. Hey, folks. Has COVID got you cooped up? Got a hankering for a brand new vacation idea? A unique getaway of some kind? A one-on-one -on -one bonding extravaganza? Maybe with a bovine? Visit AloneWithACowOnADesertIsland.com for the latest and greatest in non-hypothetical excursions. Tell, tell, tell them Manny sent you. Book your trip today. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. Our theme music was composed by a not-a-shitty singer named Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Neo and distributed by Liberalism. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at Gmail. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Remember to buy the books that we recommend at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. Support local bookstores and fuck Jeff Bezos. Is that it? Did you run out of steam? <laughs> Where's the rest of this thing? I don't know. You copy and pasted it. And join our ever-growing Substack audience at unftr.substack.com. That's where we post all of the essays. And remember, it will always be free. Anyone with auditory processing issues, please see a link below to find a musicless version of UNFTR. That is a uh, 99 invention that's carried out by Manny Faces because accessibility is important to us. And on that note, 99, I bid you a good day. And to you, good sir. Wow. You're killing me today. The dog thing I can't, the dog thing I, I'm not going to get over. Why? Oh, my dog, a She is a doofus. She can open doors. Okay. She can open the fucking door. Yeah? I mean, she's a genius. I never see, have you ever seen a pig open a fucking door with a handle? No. Pigs. They're they're too Smarter short. My dog and their legs are too short. Sorry, <laughs> I know I'm a child. I'm a child. I know. <laughs>